The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. You are now about to take a journey with professional advisors Ken Smith and Ethan Broga on Empirical Investing Radio. To connect with Empirical Investing Radio, please call 1-866-472-5790. Fasten your seatbelts. You're going to need them. Just because the hosts have a sense of humor does not mean their advice won't change your life. Good afternoon and welcome to Empirical Investing Radio. I'm Ken Smith. Sitting next to Ethan Brugge. Good afternoon, Ethan. Hey, Ken. Good to see you as usual. Good to be here. uh, This show is designed to share with you prudent investing and financial planning ideas to help you grow, accumulate, and preserve your wealth and uh, hopefully enjoy the fruits of your labor as well. We want to help you make a lifetime of smart financial decisions. And uh, we do that by keeping on top of the latest and greatest in the financial world, Ethan, and sharing it with our listeners along the way. Mm-hmm. Why don't you give out our contact information, and we'll get started with uh, some investing topics today. That sounds good. Uh, if you'd like to join the program, you can reach us at uh, contact at empiradio.com or via phone at 866-472-5790. And uh, if you're an individual investor out there, maybe looking for a second opinion, perhaps you're preparing for retirement, uh, would like an analysis or at least maybe uh, some feedback on how you're currently structured for retirement purposes, feel free to give us a call here at the the Empirical Headquarters in Seattle at 206-923-3474 and ask to speak with Ken or Ethan, and we'll be uh, happy to talk with you. So today, Ken, I was thinking maybe we could run through... um, I'm building a presentation about uh, some different approaches to investing. Right. So I spent some time over the last couple of weeks putting together some slides and trying to, you know, make a hopefully a compelling argument uh, as to which approach is probably the best best to use. And, um, so I thought maybe we could start up with that. Okay, let's do it. The uh, the the name of the presentation I haven't quite finalized it yet, but I, I'm calling it something along the lines of. Traditional investing versus indexing versus enhanced indexing. So there we'll discuss basically three different types of uh, investments or approaches to investing, basically. Okay. And uh, I start out very, very simply and just kind of mention what those things are. So in terms of the traditional investment management approach, uh, it generally engages in one, of the, one or two of the following activities. That is market timing, using some type of forecasting yeah. uh, to predict when to be in and out of the market. Or stock picking, which uses typically either some type of fundamental or technical analysis. Fundamental analysis being the individual uh, research of a uh, research of a company, take an individual company, yeah. and researching its balance sheet, its growth opportunities, right. its potential competitive uh, barriers and, and other issues, and trying to come up with a, a fair market value for right. that, or applying some 
some financial metric to their mm-hmm. to their financial uh, situation and trying to come up with some fair market value and then determining is the current price at below or above that exactly and making right. an investment decision around that. Yeah. Technical analysis is a little different. Yeah, basically using charts, right, as a means to make uh, purchase and sell decisions based on stock performance. There's really very little. If there's no concern about the financial prospects of a particular company or a group of stocks or securities or investment. And primarily, it's it's a focus on the trading pattern. Exactly. And there's all kinds of very complicated ways to do that and look at that. But it's primarily based on what, how the particular investment is trading. So if it's been trending up, will it continue to trend up? If it's been mm-hmm. going down or moving in wild patterns of up and down, interpreting what those mean and what's likely to happen based on past performance. Right. And these two approaches, uh, in one form or another, either can be done directly by individuals or if you own mutual funds, active, you know, traditional mutual funds, you're delegating one of those, usually one of those two approaches to your own investments, usually. Now, what I've seen a lot is, a, is kind of a hybrid of these two. And, and most individuals that we come across, mm-hmm. they've, a lot of them have developed their own approach that's kind of a combination of, well, I think the company is reasonably priced, or I think they'll have great earnings growth going forward. But I also think, it, it, based on where it's traded, I don't know if you've experienced this, Ethan, but I a lot have, of yeah. times that comes in, well... I don't want to sell it now because it was higher at one point, and I think it'll get back to it, uh, that level, or vice versa. It's hitting new highs every day. I'd like to wait and see if it'll stop doing that before I were <laughs> to diversify. There's always right. some combination yeah. of intertwining the story of the company's prospects mm-hmm. with its historical trading patterns or yeah. where it's been. Most of the time, I would say individuals use a less sophisticated approach than the folks that are running mutual funds. But interestingly enough, they're they're not wildly more successful. The folks who have the more disciplined approach, but still practice the traditional mm-hmm. investment management style. Yeah. So that's kind of one one group. And we talked a little bit about that. We have some anecdotal evidence about you know does the traditional approach work? And by work, I mean does it beat the index or beat an index that's appropriate for it, um, depending on the, the type of stocks they're, they're looking at. Um, and then obviously we have the indexing approach, which really simply tries to capture the market performance of a particular market. So if you're in large cap stocks, your your index is the S and P 500, right? That's right. If you're in small cap stocks, your index is the the Russell 2000. Those don't aren't trying to outperform small cap stocks or large cap stocks, respectively. They're just trying to capture the performance of those particular markets, basically. Right. Um, of course, if you do that, you're gonna you don't have the potential to outperform either. But that's okay. I mean, a lot of times that that works out all right. So that's kind of the premise, uh, at least the introductory information to the, this presentation. I want to make sure we're all on the same page. Move on to say, currently, how is the mutual fund industry set up? And it turns out, if you look across the, the, the over 5,000 mutual funds out there right now, are re- representing about $6.5 trillion, uh, there's currently about 80% of the money is run in traditional fashion, you know, traditional money management. And about 20% is in indexed. Which is, which is well, the first... To either market timing or fundamental analysis or right um, stock picking, All right? Or you kind of have it market timing and stock picking. Yep. 
Okay. So the vast majority is still run traditionally, even though, of course, over the years, more and more evidence has been brought brought forth and and concludes that indexing probably is, is a superior way to go. Uh, but yet, it's still a relatively small amount of the total out there. Interestingly enough, yeah, I mean the evidence is 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 overwhelming. Yeah, it is actually. So I, obviously, that's true. I, I believe that as well. Um, but yet, I think there's a reason why people uh, aren't not why everybody isn't just indexing. I think it has to do with uh, slide number seven, Ken, on, on your slides there. It has to do with the lure of market timing. Um, it just goes through an example of, of a growth of $1,000 uh, for the 70-year period ending December 31st, 2010. If you put that $1,000 in a savings account 70 years ago, you'd have about $17,000 right now. If you invested it all in the S&P index 70 years ago, you'd have about $1.6 million dollars. Which is nice, way more than the savings account. Mm-hmm. If you invent, uh, invested in a small cap index, yeah, in this case they're using this for your information, Ken, the sort of the uh, the crispy information, the crisp nine ten okay. index. Uh, you'd have about thirteen million dollars, so significant improvement over uh, just the S and P, just by investing in smaller company stocks. The perfect timing strategy where you were able to <laughs> to to buy in at every market low point, but sell sell at the, sell, tip. Sell at the top. You'd guess how much you'd have? A lot, a lot. Seven billion dollars. <laughs> Seven billion dollars. <laughs> so a lot of money. Wow. And I think that that's part yeah. of the allure, right? If you because yeah. if you can get it right, boy, the payoff is huge. Yeah, it would be an enormous payoff. Uh, but clearly, that isn't is, is a bit of a fantasy. You can't you can't perfectly time everything. Um, and if you had the a perfectly awful timing strategy, your thousand dollars would turn into about three dollars and forty cents. <laughs> but again, that, I think it's the the idea here. There's that the hope springs eternal, so we're willing to not look or even take heed to the evidence out there a lot of times, just for, because we have this hope of of getting, you know, amazingly good performance. Uh, so that's part of the reason why I think it's uh, it's pervasive out there. Um, but why is it so hard to time the market? Why is it such a difficult feat? Um, and on the next slide in the presentation, we talk about the timing the market in terms of recessions. It's interesting to me that the when they announce recessions, it's it's already after the fact, after the market's gone down a lot. So looking at the recessionary period from 2007 through 2011, there was a 30-month recession. The uh, announcement for the recession came on December 1st, 2008. But the recession actually started in December 2007. So it wasn't known until well after the fact that, hey, we're already in a recession. Right. And the, the converse is also true. When you're actually out of the recession, it isn't known for quite some time until after the fact. That's what makes market timing, you know, one of the things that make market timing very difficult to do. Because um, it's, it's, it's a very dynamic economy, you know, and stock prices are very dynamic. You don't know where exactly where you're at at any given time until you have a chance to evaluate the data, and that takes time. Right. So that's why, why market timers aren't more successful at least an example of why that is, anyway. Further, experts have time predicting it too. So, you know, just trying to figure out whether we're in recession or not isn't always the the, the thing. Um, trying to figure out when things will turn around is also a, a, a big thing. And we cite a, a, a report here that came out in uh, in January 2002, and all the experts in this particular survey, I think they they surveyed 19. Economists. So their job is to be in the know, right? Right. Make predictions as to what the market holds for the, the coming year. 
And in 2012, all of them predicted that the economy would recover and stocks would begin to go back up. Right. It turns out, in hindsight, after the fact, that not a single one of the 19 stock managers, or economists, rather, uh, interviewed got it right. All of them were incorrect. And for, for the year 2002, the Dow Jones was down 22%. It was actually the worst year <laughs> wow. in, in, in the sequence of three years in a row where returns were negative for the Dow. So it's really as difficult to do. No question about it. So I have a couple of points here, Ethan. Sure. Um, one about the recession. I think a lot of people would say, yeah, in this last recession, Ethan, you pointed out that it, it started in December 2007, but uh, it wasn't announced till December of 2008. Right. But I think a lot of people would argue with you and say, well, yeah, but I didn't need the, the um, Bureau of Economic Statistics to tell me that things weren't working out. We knew what was going on in the headlines. So I think sometimes that's confusing. Okay, sure. And however, in previous recessions, I think it was even less apparent just in terms of, because here we had a financial crisis, right? That right. was offset. And so I think people may discount that and go, well, geez, I, I didn't need to, I didn't need to be told a year later that we were having financial issues. Right. Um, right, because the market had already declined quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there was a lot of news about the, the mortgages and, and all the stuff that was going on. True. Now, the issue then would have been, well, how severe would the decline be? Uh, and that was very difficult to determine. And maybe even irrelevant when, if you knew in advance that the market will recover. And so uh, the, the next point that I w- wanted to make here that that's relevant, Ethan, to all this is just because in one particular period it seemed obvious, it doesn't mean it is over multiple cycles right so even if you thought well geez i called that i told my advisor we should have got out and there i found a couple of guys who knew that things were gonna be bad because there's advisors out there that are bragging right that they got their clients out or they knew uh that the market was going to decline Uh, it doesn't make it a good strategy going forward if you know what i'm saying and uh right because they probably would have gotten it wrong nine out of ten times mm-hmm. and cost their clients a great deal of, of money and it's irrelevant in the fact that from march 9th to the next year the market recovered substantially yeah it's also gonna go uh, to where we're now recovering you know well beyond well beyond that yeah so unless you had a very short time frame in my retirement process that i'm developed here this presentation shows you exactly how you would never get caught in that situation where the the period of time we went from top to bottom now back to where we were wouldn't have been the money you'd have been using for your income anyway you wouldn't have been investing in aggressive stocks um, and pulling money out every year for that from that part of your component right i'm suggesting you have a 10-year period of uh where it's the income you're using for your Closest ten years, you're not you're not involving in the stock market altogether, mm-hmm. uh, which in itself would have gotten you through most of the market declines. Right. And lastly, even then we'll get, let you move on. Okay. Um, the idea that uh, when you're dealing with these downturns or this this uh, recession, having a what most people wind up doing is having some kind of a hybrid strategy where they they either internally argue with themselves, I should get out, I knew I should have got out, 
and then eventually they get out, but it's at the low point, right? Or they have an advisor who's saying we should stick with it, and they don't get out until it's too late, and they say, and then they fire the advisor, right? Mm. Oh well, I I knew, and that's the worst of all strategies, right? Uh, you need to have something that you actually, if it's staying in the market, then it's sticking in the market. If it's getting out of the market, the best approach that I've been able to find, looking at the empirical data, is simply saying, hey, when the market declines X amount, then I'm going to get out. And I will be back in at this point in time. And if you do that, you wind up getting a reduced return, but at least the reduced return is equivalent to about what your market exposure is or your exposure to stocks over a given long-term period of time. Uh Where you get penalized and where we see study after study um, of this, and Fidelity did a study uh, looking at 401 retirement accounts through the crisis, Mm -hmm. people who just consistently kept adding and kept their allocation the same did better than people who were actively jockeying around. Oh, no question, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, And that's happened in all. If we look at the Dalbar study and other studies of how investors have done, the reason why they're getting below... Uh, average rates of return below what their exposure to equities is because they're using this hybrid strategy of, well, I should get out. Maybe I shouldn't get out. Well, I should get. I think it's a, the hybrid strategy is a misnomer, right? It isn't like there's no strategy. That's the problem. Right. Yeah. It's a, um, a, a, another name for it. The no strategy is the really where the problem is. They're getting out of the markets when the markets are incredibly cheap and they're buying in when they're incredibly expensive. Right. And that's the worst of, of, of any other strategies. And looking at look, talking about this, the same chart where the unemployment peaked, uh, unemployment peaked in October of 2009. I, obviously, people, the economy had not fully recovered by them, and stocks had already advanced quite a bit. Uh, but from that point on, you know, one of the reasons I heard at the time was, hey, unemployment's very high. Why would I, economy's going to no place? Why would, I, why would I want to be in stocks right now? Well, obviously, the next three years was pretty darn good still overall, mm-hmm. right? The, the, the Dow is now much higher than it was in, in October of 2009. And in fact, the employment rate is actually lower, but still, still elevated. So, point there's no, there's no, there's no uh, clear strategy as to, hey, because unemployment's high, future returns will be low. There's no correlation to any of that. Okay, the market is a very forward-looking machine too, and so it's it's always trying to discount um, what's going to happen in the future. We could be at a very high unemployment rate, but if the market thinks that that's going to to change. It will reprice. It reprices yes. very quickly. Right. Exactly right. Exactly right. Well, there's some further evidence about uh, in terms of you know do, do gurus get it right as well? And then there was a um, a Wall Street Journal. Actually, I think they do this pretty regularly, but this one in particular was interesting. Um, they they pull a bunch of experts, people who are experts in, in picking the right stocks. Uh, this was published in February 7th, 2005. Um, basically, have a love and love them hate them uh, segment where they rank a bunch of stocks that all of them uh, say to sell and rank, rank some stocks that they suggest that people buy. Interestingly, the 10 best stocks did pretty well uh, over this particular year through 2005. The 10 best stocks um, were up 13% for the year, which is not bad at all. But only to be outdone by the losers were up 19% over the same period. Awesome. I find that fascinating. Um, clearly a bit anecdotal, but makes the point pretty, pretty, pretty well there that um, even the experts... Are, are wrong frequently about these types of things. So the the the, the best analysts that Walt, the Wall Street Journal could put together pick their favorite stocks, and the ten favorite stocks did substantially worse than 
the 10 stocks they thought would be the worst exactly. of all the stocks. We've got to take a quick break, Ethan. We'll pick back up on this when we come back. Empirical Investing Radio. business community's first choice in internet talk radio voice america business network are you an individual investor looking for a trusted financial advisor or are you a financial professional looking to connect with a world-class wealth management firm my name is simon Liu, portfolio manager with empirical wealth management inviting you to contact us at 1-800-923-4307 that's 1-800-923-4307 or visit our website at EmpiricalFS.com. That's E-M-P-I-R-I-C-A-L-F-S.com. Our mission at Empirical is to provide clients with the most effective, unbiased investment and financial planning advice available. Empirical is changing the way investment advice is delivered by striving to put our clients' interests first. Call us now to get started with a no-cost, no-obligation discovery process. The number again is 1-800-923-4307. Or you can begin this process on our website at EmpiricalFS.com. What are the reasons that over three-quarters of small businesses fail within three years? Why do 70% of U.S. women-owned businesses make less than $50,000 a year? What causes mid-sized companies to stagnate? Although today many fundamentals of business remain the same, there are critical current changes that are not being acknowledged, and the result is costly. Tune in to Moving Forward with host Jen Sabin. We'll discuss the core reasons and plans of action to keep your business moving forward. Listen Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Business. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and co-host Ethan Broga. To call into the program with a question or comment, please dial 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to contact at empiradio.com. Now, back to Ken and Ethan. Okay, we're back. Empirical Investing Radio. Your host here, Ethan Broga, alongside Ken Smith. Uh, we're just talking about some different approaches to investing. One of those being the sort of traditional speculative approach, as we like we like to call it, uh, versus indexing, and then what we call enhanced indexing. Oh, I like that. Thank you very much. If you'd like to join the program today, feel free to give us a call or email. We can be reached at contact at empiradio.com or eight six six four seven two. Five seven nine zero, and right before the break, we were just finishing up uh, our first segment, and we finished up on a, uh, a Wall Street Journal um, article that came out uh, back in two thousand and five, where you know the, the Wall Street Journal pulled together a group of, of uh, stock pickers and sort of what we call experts, uh, and ranked some uh, their ten most favorite stocks and their ten least favorite stocks, and as it turned out, the worst stock did better by not not a small margin by by quite a bit over that uh, the subsequent time period. Which really kind of begs the question in, in a lot of cases is, you know, is, is our stock pickers better than what we have here? At least my slide is a, a chimpanzee. And we've heard those studies before, Ken, where you have uh, 
<laughs> actually have chimps throwing darts, and sometimes they, they end up beating uh, the stockpickers, right? Interestingly enough. <laughs> That's the cue for that. I appreciate it. But even even big experts get it wrong. I mean, people like Bill Gross. And we've talked about this on the show before. You know, Bill Gross is a runs the world's largest bond fund for Pimco, and uh, he's had numerous wrong calls over the years. But one of them in particular uh, was back in 2002, September 2002. Or here's this is a quote from from Bill at the time: "Stock stink, and will continue to do so until they're priced appropriately." Um, well, the market low came just about two weeks later after this was published in 2002 and began to go up uh, onto a five-year bull run after that. Um, and he predicted that would actually reach 5,000 at that time. Yeah. So it didn't get anywhere close to that, um, even though obviously Bill had uh, <laughs> I'm sure he had good reasons to say what he did, but he just wasn't right about it. Right. He, he's actually said several things that haven't panned out that yep. were not just small things. Like, oh, he was a little bit off, but really Wildly off. off, right. Um, and, uh, it's not a reflection of the intelligence of, of him or his team. Nope. The current uh, guy that it's down there at PIMCO. But um, it's more of a reflection of how difficult it is to get these types of predictions correct. Yes, I would agree. No doubt about it. And one of the folks that have made the most, perhaps the, the boldest predictions that I've been aware of here in recent years was a person named Harry Dent. Um, who in 1999 publishes his book called The Roaring 2000s, and in it he predicted that the Dow Jones by the end of 2008 would reach 44,000. That's appropriate. And uh, obviously that did not happen. It uh, wasn't anywhere close to that. But don't worry, because he's coming out with a, he came out with a new book in, in 2009 whose who's, uh, who's title is The Great Depression Ahead. So maybe there's hope for, for good returns in the future, because he'll probably be as wrong as he was before. Um, Interestingly enough, uh, how those guys continue to get published and, and produce new material. Um, yeah, no, they have I, no track record of anything that's you know proven to be good. Uh, further evidence goes on. A lot of times we hear things in the media like Money Magazine or Forbes or wherever. You know, a lot of financial media out there, and um, they're always advising you what to do. You know, you should be owning these stocks, you should be selling these stocks, and so forth and so on. Uh, one of these articles came out in uh, August 1997. Uh, it was a Money Magazine article, and it said the title was "Don't Just Sit There, Sell Stocks Now." Was the, the headline on the, the magazine cover? Oh, is that one of the slides you have in here? Yep, that's number seventeen. Okay, got it. And uh, well, for you know, for folks who followed that advice, it probably didn't turn out to be all that great. Um, I don't know. Can you probably know? And maybe our listeners do. But the next four years turned out to be the, among the greatest bull run in history for stocks, right? Uh, up until about the end of 1999, at which time they came out with another, another uh, magazine headline that says, uh, Tech Stocks, Everyone's Getting Rich. Here's how to get your <laughs> share. To get your share. <laughs> so the folks who followed the advice in 1997 didn't get rich, but now that they're, it's now 1999, they're advising folks to get into tech stocks, right? And of course, not, not more than six months later, began the tech bubble. Bursting. Yeah, that's horrible. So bad, bad, bad stuff. If you follow those those headlines or those money magazines uh, articles, and uh, um, you know, it seems anecdotal, but clearly people do follow their advice, right? They're looking for advice and they're getting it from sources like this, and obviously making poor decisions on, on a lot of times. Um, but this really shouldn't be too surprising. And um, the next slide I have here is uh, is a quote from Steve Forbes, which I find. I mean, everybody knows this is true, but to actually have him say this and have it be a direct quote kind of 
it's kind of mind-boggling a little bit. But the quote goes like this, and Steve Forbes, though you don't, for those of you who don't know, is a publisher of, of Forbes magazine. Um, he says, you make, quote, you make more advice selling it than following it. You make more money selling advice than following it. Thanks for clarifying. It's one of the things we count on in the magazine business, along with the short-term memory of our readers. So that's a pretty, uh, I mean, that's an amazing quote, right? Well, I think it's entirely true. I mean, clearly he knows. He built sure it. he does. Uh, but it is true, and it, it never seems to, ceases to amaze me how many of these. I mean, you could start at any time. You could start collecting them right now. But I think most of us want to read something, make it a quick decision, and then go on to the next thing. Right. And we we spend very little time going back and accounting for how accurate those decisions were. Sure. Um, because. It, a lot of these magazines wouldn't be in business year after year after year, or even the financial uh, media that's and subscriptions that are available online. Uh, if people really held their track records accountable, held, they were held accountable to their track records. Yep. Even Jim Cramer wouldn't be on TV at all if anyone ever did any honest analysis of his advice. Um, or measure it if there's any value to what he's what he's doing, right. other than entertainment. But when people call and say, "What do you think of this stock or that stock?" and him giving credence to that as a strategy, in itself is very ridiculous. But the fact that people give him credit because he's on TV, um, it leads to to me a continual process of making the same mistakes over and over again and never really learning from them. Right. You know, even the bubble stuff, you would think, hey, we'll, we'll learn our lesson from that. Uh, when the first technology bubble burst and people flooded money into real estate, thinking that real estate could never drop or ever go, when it already had shown that it does that. And we were talking about it way back then, mm-hmm. telling people, hey, stop well, you don't need to get out of general investment markets or create something that says, hey, I give up on equities, only to get back into them at the worst possible time, which will be at the next bubble, right? Um, and, and it happens time and time again. That was gold, right? And yeah. it's, um, it's just unfortunate because if we actually looked at the data uh, and held ourselves accountable to what we're reading or held these Authors, if you did, you'd never buy another money magazine, right? Why would you buy it when you've you've already proved that two, two huge mistakes would have been made there? Following the, these are the cover stories, by the way, <laughs> not just all the other stuff that goes on inside, right? Um, be a big problem. Yeah, and he, obviously their the motivation here is is first to, to sell more magazines, and I'm not sure where actually the good advice part falls in in all that. You know, maybe it's second or third, or maybe even lower down the line. Who knows for sure? But, but it doesn't help you make smart investment decisions. That's pretty clear. Um, indeed, the financial media is set up. Here, here's another example. Uh, in October 2002, the Wall Street Journal. Here's the headline. It goes: uh, Bears claw markets yet again as the Dow Industrials fall nearly three percent. Um, so there's the headline there, and there's another person in the Wilmington Trust on the same day who quotes quote. Uh, reads terrorism, war, falling earnings estimates. Right now, there doesn't seem to be any good reason to buy stocks. So that's October tenth, two thousand and two. Um, lots of wrong things going wrong right there, right? Stock markets declining, 
you know, people aren't uh, aren't happy to be in stocks. Well, it turns out if you had followed the advice once again, uh, you would have gotten burned. In fact, the next day returned, October 10th, the, the market was up 247 points. The next day, October 11th, the market was up 316 points. The next day, next business day, market was up 27 points. And the very next day, market was up 378 points. Uh, just when it seemed there's no nobody wants to invest and everything's going wrong, all of a sudden the market surges. And in fact, for that entire four-day period after the drop, um, the Dow was up 669 points. I'm sorry, 969 points in, in that four-day period of time. And it ends up being the best four-day gain since 1933. Wow. Which is staggering, right? I mean, if you're following these headlines, you're following the advice in these papers, I mean, you're going to get burned, no question about it, because you can't, this stuff is not as simple as it, it appears to be. I like the uh, cartoon you have in there, Ethan, that you put it's in this. It says, uh, it shows a bunch of people sitting on a plane and over the loudspeaker, uh, an announcement is made. The pilot has indicated we're going to experience a little turbulence. Please fasten your seatbelts. And a panic guy is screaming out, we're going to die. And, uh, the person next, the lady next to him, uh, is turned to what look, appears to be her husband says, he's a financial reporter. <laughs> <laughs> I love it, right? That is so really good. The pilot, the expert of the, of the plane, right? The guy who's guiding the ship here tells everybody, hey, we're going to experience a little turbulence, so it'll be okay, but just make sure you're buckled up. The financial reporter interprets that to say, ah, oh, we're all going to die. <laughs> and then, you know, obviously, the person next to him is a little more cooler head there, and, and, and that prevails. But pretty funny. Yeah, I like that article, or that, uh, that, that cartoon. So we talked about uh, a lot of things here so far. The financial media, how it's not particularly helpful. Even experts get it wrong. Um, oftentimes, and indeed, even some of the rating agencies don't help. And uh, the next slide talks just briefly on that. It, it evaluates um, four different mutual funds and shows you what the, the rankings were at the same time for for five different rate ranking agencies from Morningstar to Forbes, U.S. News and World Reports, Wall Street Journal, and Business Week. So Fund A received five stars from uh, Morningstar, but while at the same time was only rated a C from the Forbes folks, and U.S. News and World Report rated it a 34 out of 100. So, you know, what's going on there? They can't, even the ratings can't be consistent and therefore are basically useless is the main point, right? Uh, Fund B here has two stars from Morningstar and is an A from Forbes, but receives only a 50 from U.S. News and World Reports. So yeah. Definitely mixed messages there. So, is this fund good or not? Well, it depends who you, who you follow, obviously, which makes it not a very, it makes it a very arbitrary uh, decision, right? Right. This doesn't really help you as an investor make good decisions and by looking at these things. There has to be a better way. Um, and indeed, it would be nice, though, clearly, though, if we could time market successfully and pick only the right stocks. In fact, we have a, we've developed internally, Ken, I don't, you haven't seen this before, but I developed an internal process to, to rank this, and I call it the awesome scale. And on my awesome scale, uh, you have stock picking and market timing. Boy, it really would be great. I mean, that would receive a 10 out of 10, right? It would be the highest on the chart. But unfortunately, there's more than one access. There's a practical or a practicability access, which in this case is the x-axis. And practically speaking, market timing and stock picking receive a zero. Mm. So it's really awesome, but it's not very practical, right? Yeah. So that's the deal. Uh, it's one of those things that sounds um, nice, you know, like hunting for unicorns as a kid. Boy, I'd, li- <laughs> I'd like to do that as a kid. I- I'm going to go on that journey. But as an adult, you realize, well, that's foolish, right? There's no such thing as unicorns. I- no need to chase them. I'm not even going to look. It's kind of like that with stock picking. Did you spend a lot of time doing that, Ethan? 
I, I personally did, but, but I knew kids who did. <laughs> this is ridiculous. It is kind of ridiculous. I agree. <laughs> no, but you get the point, right? Uh-huh. It's kind of it's kind of like you live in fantasy land, basically. Yeah. That's basically the gist of it. If you think if if you you <laughs> ignore <laughs> the evidence out there <laughs> and want to believe in that, so you can, but you're not going to get where you want to go probably very very quickly. And indeed, you have very little control over that. <laughs> Thank you very much. So to this point, we've kind of looked at some anecdotal evidence, you know, looking at market headlines, um, magazine artic- uh, um, headlines, and so forth and so on. Even quoted some some experts who failed to predict the the recent fu- the recent uh, future. Uh, okay. Not just off by look, but off by a lot. And so then I, I go into a little more concrete stuff. And here we I cite I have a bunch of them here. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, eight different independent studies. None of them conducted by us, by the way. They're all <laughs> none of them conducted by Ethan Broga. I didn't. I don't need to go out and do these these uh, these studies because there, there's mountains of them out there I can just choose from, and I quickly put eight together, all done by different people at different times, but basically conclude that experts don't beat the markets. So experts don't do better than their than their appropriate risk adjusted index. That's the conclusion that all eight of these independent studies that cover decades and decades of time um, studying mutual fund managers. Uh, conclude basically. Um, how much time do we have for our break? We have about three minutes. A couple minutes. Okay, great. Yeah. So there's lots of these in there. Um, I don't know if we need to go through each one of these, but um, one in particular I think is interesting. Uh, number twenty, uh, uh, thirty-two rather, which covers the last ten years ending two thousand and eleven. And you might think, but boy, if managers are going to add some value in any period of time, it's going to be when the market's tough. And we've had a pretty tough market, I would say, over the last decade, maybe a little more than that. Um, but indeed, the failure rate for, for managers engaging in the traditional approach to, to investments relative to their indices is enormous. It's very, very high. Um, and this, this particular chart I've broken down in by asset class. It goes from large cap core, you know, U.S. equities, all the way down to um, global equity, to the other extreme. And now one of those categories, you have a situation where the, where the traditional approach beat the index approach over that period of time on average. So they ranked them. Uh, there's a 95% failure rate, for example, in large-cap core U.S. equities. In other words, only 5% of the managers in that space beat their index over that entire decade. Mm-hmm. That's very bad, right? It's yeah. very poor. But yet, for people who own those funds, you're, you're, you're ignoring this evidence and still owning the fund, even though the failure rate is, is significantly high, meaning you're going to get less than you deserve in terms of your returns. That's the bottom line there. Looking at large-cap uh, value, 88% failure rate. 88% of the managers in that space for that entire decade did not beat their appropriate index. Um, that's what that means. Well, you know, another thing that I think where people um, have a hard time, Ethan, and I can I can empathize with this, is that when 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 re- the markets in general aren't doing great, yeah, we want to we want to have a tendency we have to look for a bright spot. And if you're buying an index. Fund, if that were the case, and say it was in uh, emerging markets or in U.S. large cap core here, and lar- large cap hasn't done well over the last decade in general. You're trying to find managers who have added value throughout those times. Okay, um, and I, I can I can see how that is. Well, I've been doing this for 17 years, so we've ex- I've seen it over and over again where. It's 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 hard to stay in an index that is doing. If you look back and say, "Wow, I mean, this is a even look at a globally diversified portfolio that's done 
Uh, if you went back to 2007 and now, and you invested at the very peak of the market in 2007, mm-hmm. you've got maybe a 1.2 to 1. Point or you know somewhere between one and two percent return per year for the last few years. Yeah, right, right. And you might get frustrated and say, "Hey, that stinks." You know, I had I exposed myself to this equity risk. Now, another way of looking at it is saying, actually, you've done quite well because X percent of stock picking managers underperformed even the, that. Even that, right? Mm-hmm. And my low performance was a result of a global financial crisis in which I've emerged in that period of time. So, say seven to eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. It'll be six years this year, right? Yep. But say over the last five years, uh, that was a decline that was a significant, you know, again, going back to the depression, at the tech bubble, but then back to the mm-hmm. depression, right? You look at that and say, I've done phenomenally well because any short period of time in the market, particularly equities, yeah. is, is not a guarantee, right? I'm investing for the opportunity to earn a higher rate of return. Exactly. And what you should really be focusing on is a premium over inflation. And so maybe over this period you didn't get that, right? But you would expect that in any five-year period. You may not get it. But a lot of people would be inclined to abandon the strategy. There's a good percentage of people who would say, hey, geez, 1% or 1.5% for five years, you know, with my equities. That's, I got to get out of this. And what are they going to go to? Right. Are they going to be going to the person or the fund or the investment or themselves who thinks that they could have done better over that past period of time? And the very strategy that they're claiming to have done in the past is likely going to cost them in the future. And so what I see is this perpetual thing where they constantly changing and firing and moving, whether they're running their own portfolio, they're constantly trying new things, only to have to the, the worst possible scenario. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it looks like we've got to take a quick break, Ethan. Okay. But uh, when we come back, we'll spend the last segment going through the rest of these. Great. And uh, summarizing. We'll take a quick break. Thanks for tuning in, Empirical Investing Radio. The business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. Are you an individual investor looking for a trusted financial advisor? Or are you a financial professional looking to connect with a world-class wealth management firm? My name is Simon Liu, Portfolio Manager with Empirical Wealth Management, inviting you to contact us at 1-800-923-4307. That's 1-800-923-4307. Or visit our website at empiricalfs.com. That's E-M-P-I-R-I-C-A-L-F-S.com. Our mission at Empirical is to provide clients with the most effective, unbiased investment and financial planning advice available. Empirical is changing the way investment advice is delivered by striving to put our clients' interests first. Call us now to get started with a no-cost, no-obligation discovery process. The number again is 1-800-923-4307. Or you can begin this process on our website at EmpiricalFS.com. In sales, are you a lion or a vulture? Lions don't wait, they just go for it. 
Vultures hang around until the lions are finished and just pick up the scraps. How can you set yourself apart as a lion? Join the other aspiring sales lions and listen to Forget Patience, Let's Sell Something with host Ty Maynard. You'll learn the tips and strategies of top sales professionals. You'll gain more clients at a faster rate and at higher margins. If you're a sales professional, business owner, or executive, listen in every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and co-host Ethan Broga. To call into the program with a question or comment, please dial 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to contact at empiradio.com. Now, back to Ken and Ethan. Okay, we're back at Empirical Investing Radio. Your host here alongside uh, Ken Smith. I'm sorry, Ethan Broger alongside <laughs> Ken Smith. Uh, if you'd like to join the program Who for our last, last segment today, uh, feel, for, feel, feel free to give us a call or shoot us an email. Uh, we can be reached at contact at empiradio.com or 866-472-5790. And uh, Ken, right before the break, I, I wanted to mention one thing. Just to Yeah, I would, I would love to hear that. You know, a lot of times... I think everybody does this. We're all prone to do this, and which it makes good sense in a lot of ways. But in this particular case, it probably isn't the best the best thing to do. Or if you experience, you're talking about a five year period of time where you, you experience less than less than great returns in the stock market, and then you abandon abandon the approach, abandon investing in stocks perhaps altogether, or you go to you know, some some somewhere else where they they are saying they can predict what's going to happen, so you can avoid the the downturns again. Right. Um, if you take that five-year experience as an investor and base your entire future investment life on that one five-year experience, I think that's a very poor decision. To make the best decision, you'd want to examine, well, how did other five-year periods of time you know, uh, turn out? Yes. Rather than, than, than focusing only on the five-year five period you experienced. Right. In other words, do things or at least look at things beyond your own experience so you can make the most informed and best decision. You know, if it turns out that every five-year period is always bad for stocks, well, then maybe you have something. Right. But if it turns out that you know most five-year periods actually are pretty good for stocks, well, then you shouldn't abandon the strategy just because of your own individual personal experience in that particular period of time, right? Right. You know, it's the same thing, that type of thing. It's reasons why we go to doctors because we want the, we value the opinion of, of experts, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, if, rather than self-diagnosis and self-treatment, well, why don't you do that? Because you don't have the experience that the doctor does, right? Right. It's the same type of thing with investing. You have to make decisions, at least if you want the best outcome, make decisions based on not just your personal experience, but the experience of, in this case, <laughs> a mountain and mountain of data that says, hey, five-year stock returns usually are pretty good. Yeah. I think it's a better way to do it. I agree. Yeah. Um, any, any comments on that before we move on to uh, the next couple of slides here? No, I, I agree. I knew you would. <laughs> I can't argue with that, with that overwhelming logic, Ethan. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I've talked to folks in the past uh, uh, who are ma- thinking about making changes, particularly for the crisis, right. and I, I urge them to think about the experience uh, of, of outside their own experience to make the decision, because a lot of times it's it's flawed. Right. Our own view, perspective is not the, the doesn't lead to the best results oftentimes, particularly when it comes to investing. Uh, so the same study that evaluated the stocks 
different stock asset classes, the, the, the number of, and frequency of managers that fail to beat their benchmark um, for, for stocks is also true with bonds. And so fixed income is also the same. We have the same type of results there where, where traditional managers fail to beat their benchmarks um, in, in, again, a, in a pretty, actually a good bond market. Right. You know, the last 10 years for bonds were really not too bad at all. Uh, but here you have, again, uh, per asset class, almost categorically um, um, underperformance relative to an appropriate benchmark. So that's some good evidence there is, hey, that probably isn't the best strategy. And if you're betting on that to, to you know, for your retirement, it's a very poor bet in my view. Right. Um, now, to be fair, I'm going to skip ahead here. To be fair, I also wanted to include some evidence uh, that supports traditional management because I wanted to be kind of play both sides of the coin, you know, give you a little bit of flavor of both. And um, in my presentation, anyway, we, the next slide after I, I mentioned that is that, hey, there's it's just a blank slide. Um, you have nothing. I have nothing. I couldn't find <laughs> any evidence that supports traditional management is the way to go. So there you have it. <clears throat> okay, that's a quick one. <laughs> Very quick one. Very quick one. Um, so now, in general, we understand that, hey, the, the media doesn't really help make uh, smart investment decisions, um, help the individual investor. We also know that the, the, the experts, folks who are managing traditional um, mutual funds, don't beat indexes um, in general. And uh, we have the studies that support that. Um, so what are, what are the actual returns? And that's kind of what I wanted to get to next, which is some of these. Well, let's look at some of these things. Um, not to say they beat it or don't beat it, but what are the returns? And so I have a couple of things here, and actually several slides that talk about um, um, some mutual fund performance versus a couple of indexes. And the first one that I have here is actually from the Forbes Honor Roll. Now, I don't believe they do this anymore. Um, well, they have the Forbes Honor Roll where they they basically praise the last year's stock or mutual fund managers, and then they uh, recommend, hey, these are, one, these are the ones to own basically for the next year. Yeah. And, and in that particular case, in this particular study, well, it's not a study, it's just a, a Forbes article, I suppose. But how do they, how did the Forbes on a roll um, uh, mutual fund selections outperform relative to the indexes? And this covered a period of time from 1973 uh, through 1988. So it wasn't like one year. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like two years or five years. It's a long period of time <laughs> that they did this. And the Forbes on a roll folks, over that entire period of time, average return is about 13.6% per year, which is not too bad. Uh, but compared to the S&P index, it did 14.3%. And the small cap index did 16.3%. Oh, wow. So there's the best of the best who made the Forbes honor roll for these many years, um, underperforming just two basic, simple indexes for the period of time. So I thought that was pretty compelling. So there's some actual data, some actual numbers, uh, um, aside from academics telling you what you better do. Here's, here's some, some, some data that we can latch on to and say, well, gee, we can draw some, con- some conclusions, I think, from that. Go ahead. Thoughts, comments? Uh, I was just going to mention that Eric and I are working on a project that um, when I get the conclusive statistics, I'll get to you. All right. But I asked I asked Eric, our director of research, how many funds are in the Morningstar database that have been around since 1970 right. uh, or earlier? And uh, he came up right now, when you run it through their database, you get about 28 distinct funds um, that are equity, somewhere in the 20s, mid-20s, wow. Wow. that have been around. And so the next part of the project was, well, how many funds were there in existence back in 1970? Mm-hmm. Um, and you had pointed out one of your earlier slides, I think there's 5,000 plus yeah, mutual funds, uh, funds out there. I would have thought it's even more now, but 
because there's ETFs are rolling out daily, so I don't know if we're excluding them from that. I think these are just mutual funds. Okay. Separate from exchange traded. Yes, Because, exactly. yeah, I would think that that, that number has got to be closer to 10,000 of total yeah. ETFs, closed-end funds, open-end funds of all kinds. Right. Um, I would think that, that it's even greater than that. But I venture, I, I'm pretty sure there's at least a few hundred funds. Um, I'm expecting to see that maybe there was four or five hundred out equity funds, say, in 1970. Yeah. Um, I'll bet. Uh, back then. And so the second part of this, I'll skip to the cut to the chase here, Ethan. But I said, hey, if you had equally weighted a portfolio then of, you know, we're just using these 28 fund equity funds that were in the Morningstar database. Mm-hmm. What kind of return do you wind up getting? Um, and I think you get somewhere around nine, nine and a half percent or so. And again, don't hold me. I, I don't have it in front of me. Mm-hmm. I only glanced at the initial results, but I'll get, well, I'll get you the exact date on the show here in the next couple well, of I'd weeks. I'd love to see it. But you get something like nine and a half. And I was saying, well, these globally diversified targeted premium models that we've been looking at, that are using these passively managed funds and institutional index enhanced. Uh, if you just did that, so we weren't picking stock pickers, right? Um, what do you what do you come up with, right? And it's somewhere between eleven and fourteen percent, depending on how aggressive you were with the weightings, right? Um, so here, here's what's interesting about that, and this is just our own. So, like you said, there's tons of studies out there. This is just an idea that I came up with, which I thought would be interesting to look at. Mm-hmm. Hey. How many how many managers are even in existence today that started in 1970? Well, that in itself tells you something. You shouldn't ignore that. You could stop the discussion right there yeah. and say, "Wow, there's only 28." Right now, whether they merge into other funds or they close, there's typically not a great reason for why they don't exist, right? Well, sure. Um, so if you took 28 and divided by that, let's assume that there were 500, right? Now you're dealing with those odds. To how, what's the chances I'm going to pick the 28 that'll even be survive? Right. Most of which would have closed just because they underperformed, which and is, nobody wanted to buy them. Which is exactly the reason why funds close is because they either they don't do well for a period of time and they get folded in or, or to other funds or they just shut them down. Yeah. So yes, that's exactly. I mean, your odds of getting it's of constructing a uh, a random portfolio of those top 28. Oh right, yeah. Are very low. I'll have Eric extremely that low for us. But, you know, it's 6% of the funds that maybe if there were 500 even survived, right? So right. 94% of them aren't, aren't even around anymore. Of those, that's the, the ones that survived, they didn't be a, a portfolio we could have constructed that was just passively managed. Right. Right? So they didn't, they didn't even beat anything is what I'm saying. Um, wow. So, anyways, I'm sorry. I just wanted to share that because it kind of goes in line with. It's the exact same type yeah. of stuff. And indeed, the next slide is similar uh, in, in some ways. Um, this is another study. Um, actually, this one's from DFA, Dimensional Fund Advisors. It covers a period uh, from 1970 to 1999. So, again, a long period of time there. You know, 30 years of time, um, and examines the top performers of mutual funds and then their their subsequent results. So, it takes the top 30 funds in a, in a five-year period of time, lumps them together, and then tracks them over the next five-year period to see what happens. Right. So there's a period from 1970 to 74 where these top 30 funds um, performed in aggregate 
3.1%. And over the next five years, well, their performance was negative 1.6. Uh, in 1975 through 79, the, the, the top 30 performed 20% per year, basically. Over the next five-year period, only did 1.8%. Uh, this is the continual thing. You, you end up getting a situation where the top performers can't repeat. They don't end up being the top performers in the subsequent time period. It's the same results we see for each of these time, time periods that they, they have outlined here. So pretty significant. I mean, if you're basing your, your decision to buy or sell or buy a mutual fund based on past performance, which is exactly why they had the disclosure <laughs> on the performance or on the fund, rather, you know, future uh, past performance is not predictive of future results. This is why. Right. Because you know, even if picking the five-star fund, well, they're going to likely do, do worse in the future. This is one study that supports that or shows that. Further, oh, go ahead. Oh, we're just, we've got a couple minutes, so I oh, okay. just want to make sure we're getting to a uh, Very good. kind of a conclusion or summary here. Well, and I think what we're going to do when this, this presentation actually is finalized and all done, we'll probably put something like this on the website at some point in time. Okay. Yeah, maybe another video or something that kind of walks through some of these things uh, to share this information with people who are, are interested in, in, in looking at it. Um, so I think next show we could talk about. I mean, what we've what you've what we've discussed today is why traditional management isn't a great way of doing it. Right. And don't confuse, uh, don't fool yourself into believing that it's the wrapper that's the problem, the mutual fund. But you could pick the stocks yourself and do a better job. That's a huge mistake. There's no evidence of that at all. And so if anyone's you know the telling you that that's the issue, um, that's not the issue. But uh, as we progress, we'll talk about, well, what can you do yeah. that works? And then I'd like to talk about, well, what is, how does an advisor fit into that? And what is the value of all these in- industry experts running around? What should they actually be doing instead of picking stocks for yes. the value? But I think that's about all the time we have today. Then. Okay. So uh, thanks for tuning in, and we'll, we'll be back again next week to finish up this topic. Have a great week. Sounds good. We hope you've enjoyed Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and Ethan Broga. Please join us again next Thursday afternoon at 5 p.m. Eastern Time and 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. And for more information about Empirical Investing Radio, please call 800-923-4307. We'll see you next week. 